I'm almost a little bit eager to wait till 10.30 and see who starts pulling in the parking lot then. Um, but we're only doing this once, so they'll get the last couple of minutes maybe. Good for you for being here on time this morning. Good, good stuff. Hey, listen, the last few weeks uh, I've been preaching through what we're, we're calling the seven-day turn. This idea that God can, and maybe some of you would actually say, oh, I could tell you a story where God did in my life. God can turn, uh, not only on a moment, but God can turn the world around quite literally in seven days, right? You think about what we were what we were looking at in Scripture just last week, this idea of the triumphal entry, and how exciting that picture was. Hundreds of people, maybe thousands, gathered around Jesus, celebrating that they had an idea that this person, Jesus, was about to do something that would, would rescue them, would, would bring them a new sense of freedom, a new sense of whatever, right? Uh, it's it's the high point. What is the high point on a roller coaster? Is it literally the high point? Or is the high point on a roller coaster the plunge? I don't know. It's irrelevant. It's the high point of them, right? For that week was Jesus was coming and we were celebrating. Even though we look at the story now, we look back, we think they weren't even celebrating what they should have been celebrating. But you just think about the energy that was in that place at that time. And, there, and all eyes were on Jesus. He was the guy. Something was going to happen. Only within a few days for that entire picture to be, I mean, it couldn't be more flipped. It couldn't be more opposite. That within a few days, this person that celebrated entering Jerusalem is arrested, beaten, and they're screaming out for his blood. I mean, talk about amazing. The flip of events. And here's what's so cool about that as we think through that story. The most amazing part hadn't even happened yet. <laughs> the most unexpected thing that God can do hadn't even come about. We're going to look this morning at the most amazing part of the whole story. You want to turn in your Bibles. Uh, there's two places I'm going to reference this morning. The first is Acts chapter 4. And the second one, if you want to put a piece of paper or your thumb or something in at 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, how amazing is this story? Because notwithstanding everything that happened in the build up to, and in fact the crucifixion itself, which completely took the legs out from underneath the apostles, Everything that they imagined was about to happen, now they're asking themselves, what did we miss? How did this happen? What now? Now, how many of you have ever found yourselves at a place in life where you have no idea what you're going to do when you get up tomorrow morning? I, like, I, I, don't, I don't know whether it's a loss of a job, a loss of family, whatever it is, right? That feeling of, I don't, I don't know what the point of tomorrow is. And I don't know, after I get up and take my first breath, what... What am I supposed to do? I mean, I don't know if we can actually get our heads around the despair that they must have felt after spending three years with him and learning from him and getting a sense that God was speaking through this person and there was hope coming, there was something coming, only to see him crucified. It's like the last three years of your life have been a waste of time. Because obviously, any rational person would know to look at what happened and say, it's over. Whatever Jesus was about, whatever he was going to do, whatever we were going to be part of, it's done now. I mean, that's the, that's the logical conclusion, is it not? When you watch him arrested, when you watch him beaten, when you watch him crucified, when you help carry him to the tomb, you have to assume it's done. Then we read from Scripture this morning, the next day, Mary goes to do what they were supposed to do because the Sabbath landed when it did. They had to wait and then go and anoint the body the next day. And we have this amazing story that now all of a sudden things turn again. And, and here's what I find fascinating about the way Scripture describes this story. 
In the passage that we read this morning, it says that Mary went there and the tomb was empty. And it goes on later in the passage to say, she went and told the disciples, and I find this fascinating. It says, they did not believe her because it sounded like nonsense. Are you on side with that? Would you, would you have maybe been one of the apostles? I, I know I would have been. I would have looked at her like, I, I don't have words for this. What do you mean he's not there? It says they didn't believe him. But here's the other thing. In the same sentence, it says they didn't believe her because it sounded like nonsense, but Peter went and ran to the tomb anyway. I love that. I just love, I mean, Peter. He's the guy, right? He's the most impetuous. Shoot the words out of your mouth before you process them. Do the thing before you think about what you're getting into. And I love the fact that it says, I don't believe you, but I'm just going to go check anyway, right? Uh, in, in Matthew, it says that the women, when they left the tomb, were afraid. They were terrified about what they had encountered. I don't know if you've encountered an angel. I haven't, but I'm pretty sure I'd be terrified. It says that they were afraid, but also filled with joy at the same time. So what are they supposed to do with that? How do you manage that? How do you be terrified about what's happening in front of you, but somehow filled with joy? Another part in Matthew 28, uh, it says that the soldiers who were aware of the empty tomb went back to their, uh, their super supervisors, superiors, and they were told, they were given some money and they were said, make up a story that his disciples, his followers, came and got the body and they took it. That's the only way we're all going to keep our heads here. I mean, if we lost this dead man, we're all dead men. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to say that they took him. His disciples took him. And it actually says in Matthew, that story perpetuated year over year over year. It, it took root. Some people just decided that has to have been what happened. Because, by the way, dead men don't rise. I don't know if you know that, but dead people don't come back to life. Right? So if Jesus, who was beaten, crucified, and put in the grave, is now alive, there has to be another explanation. So not because dead people don't rise from the dead. And so they said, here's what you tell people. Tell them that his disciples took their body. In John, it says that Mary came back to the disciples and said they took his body, as in somebody else. So think about this. You've got one gospel that says Mary went to the tomb, sees an angel, doesn't know what to do, goes back, tells the disciples they don't believe her, but they go check it out anyway. You've got another gospel that says the women went to the tomb, and they didn't know what to do. They were both afraid and filled with joy at the same time. And Matthew says, then the, the, the high priest made up a story about the disciples taking his body. And then John says, Mary goes to the tomb, come back to the disciples, and said they took his body. And I thought that the Gospels were cohesive. I thought they told the same story. John 20, she says, they've taken him, and I don't know where they put him. So the disciples go back home, but then Mary stays at the tomb. This is according to the Gospel of John. And after they've all been at the tomb and can't find him, and the disciples go back home, Mary stays there, and then Jesus appears to her and tells her, go tell the disciples I'm alive. And later that day, he shows up in the room. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever noticed those differences in the gospel account of the resurrection, but it would be fair to say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not 100% consistent about what happened. I mean, they all tell the same story. They all talk about the resurrection, but there's a little bit different in that. You think that should bother us a little bit? As people who are gathered here today, specifically because of the resurrection, it's a little uh, un unnerving to me that the accounts of the resurrection are a little bit different. Um, you go back to what was called the Enlightenment, a uh, time in history in which this idea was that we shouldn't be duped by, we shouldn't be convinced by religion. 
uh, we have an intellect, we have a mind about us, there's, there's an ability for people to think critically about things, and that we should use our intelligence to think critically about the claims of religions. Uh, it was called the Enlightenment, and it led eventually to the Industrial Revolution, this idea that uh, the underpinning thought was there's really nothing more superior in all of creation than the human being. We are the dominant species on the planet, and anything that tells you there's something beyond us is religious stuff that you've got to be careful of. Use your head, think critically, and consider these things. And so higher criticism, uh, as it approached the Christian narrative, the Christian doctrine, basically says, look, we ought to think critically about the things that the Bible says. Because this was written by people who have an agenda. They want you to behave and think a certain way. Christian faith, higher criticism would say, Christian faith is no different than any other religious system. Uh, and religious systems, their man-made systems create as a way to organize, influence, and, and have behavior modification. If you want people to generally behave in a certain way, then create a religion that goes deeper than just things. It meets their convictions, gets into your heart a little bit. It's, it's faith-based, so it's deeper than just the intellect. But faith, uh, critic, higher criticism says um, Christianity is just another religion, one of the dozens and hundreds and hundreds of religions that are out there. It's a code of rules and regulations. That's designed for behavior modification. So could this be true of the Christian faith? Is it possible? Is it possible that the Christian faith, that everything's been put together, is just a system of something that's, that's not you doing what we want you to do? Now, what we want you to do is come here Sunday and put money in the plate. That's what I want you to do, otherwise I'm not eating next week. I mean, there's behavior modification concept of this whole idea that I've heard it said, man, Christian faith is just a crutch. It's just a way of saying, I can't figure out life. I can't get through the tough things of life. So I need something that I can grasp onto. And so this is a really well-done crutch, and it works for many of us. Uh, the narrative of the Bible spans over 15 centuries, over 1,500 years, from what's considered the earliest books of the writing, uh, possibly the earliest, maybe Genesis. Uh, the argument most often is, is Job, the book of Job, sometime around 1400 B.C., and the most recent or the youngest book in our scriptures would be the book of Revelation, written about 90 years after the time of Christ. So it's, it's, it's about 1,500 years of writing, collective writings that come together, 40, 40 plus different authors in the whole thing. And the real challenge of claiming that this is just some type of system put together, it's not the time span. It's how are you going to get people, some type of conglomeration of people over that span of time to all agree and work together on one project? Right? How would you ever pull something like that? The prophetic language spoken in the Old Testament that talks about Jesus, well, there's, there's accurate dating of Old Testament writings. I mean, non-Christian, outside the church, there's people who would say, yes, the writings of the, the Christian Bible, Old Testament, we can get a relatively good idea when those were written, time-wise. As well as the historical stories of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, we can generally agree on when he was, who he was, and what he did as well. But when you think about that, if you can agree that some of the Old Testament writings were hundreds of years before Jesus, then how in the world could they have written what they did about Jesus? How is the prophetic language so perfectly fulfilled if it's all just something that's being pulled together? I mean, some of us would say, it was a really big accomplishment that I got my family in the car and we all got here today. That was, that was as cohesive as we get, right? It seems a little bit absurd to me to imagine that we say, well, it's all just part of a 
plan that somebody started 1,500 years in the making, and it involved hundreds of people in, in different cultures and dialects and different places, and somehow it all pulls together. The, the irony of higher criticism is that it doesn't seem to have thought critically enough about what it was claiming. That the biblical narrative, when you look at it as a whole, from Genesis all the way through, cannot be reconciled as a coordinated collective effort. There's, there, it's way too complex, and there's way too many contributors. So this story of the resurrection seems that there needs to be more to it than just a conspiracy of religion that people have put together. I think it's most beautifully addressed in Acts chapter 4. This is uh, sometime after the resurrection. Now you think about for a second what they experienced in that day and that moment. Uh, we say that, that the women had joy, but they also had doubt, right? They went back and told the disciples, and the disciples said, the stuff you're saying doesn't make any sense. And yet they go and check it out anyway. And to be honest with you, I don't really care. One gospel says that Mary went there by herself. Another gospel says the two Marys went together. One gospel says that they were all at the tomb and then some of them left. I don't, I don't care. What's the point of the narrative of those four gospels? What is the one thing that those four gospels all tell us? And Rhonda just told the kids here this morning. All four gospels tell us what? They went to the tomb and found nothing. And that is the point of the narrative. They went to the tomb to find this man who had been crucified because clearly he was dead and they went there to do the thing that was appropriate for them to do. And he was not there. And all the church said, Amen, he wasn't there. This is what gives the birth to our faith. You understand that, right? This is why the church exists. This is why we build buildings. It's why we do what we do. Because when they went to the tomb, he wasn't there. Amen, said one person in the church. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's actually, I mean, that's the point, right? Here's the thing. The earliest gospel, uh, and probably the earliest book in the New Testament is probably the book of James, written maybe 40 to 50 years after the time of Jesus. The gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are written 60 to 70 years later. How many of you can remember what you were doing six years ago? Two months ago, a week and a half. If I asked you to write down accurately 100% exactly what you did last Thursday. <clears throat> 70 years later, they're writing these Gospels. And up till that point, it's been a narrative. It's been a story that they're telling over and over and over again. So I don't care if John is 100% in line with what Matthew says. They both tell me the tomb was empty. They both tell me the tomb was empty. And I say to that, amen. So this story in Acts we find is sometime later now. This is Peter and John. They're coming before the Sanhedrin. doesn't matter if you know what a Sanhedrin is. The point is they're coming before the same people that sentenced Jesus Christ to death. These are the same people that Peter ran from. These are the same people that Peter said, I'm telling you for the third time, I don't even know him. I'm not associated with him. I have nothing to do with him. And runs for his life. All right? And we shake our pitchforks and, and uh, torches at Peter and think, oops, that's a little bit like me. And so here we are, same Peter, same people sometime later. Let me set the scene for you. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard, that's the exact same language you're going to find if you go back to the arrest of Jesus, as it's told in the Gospels. Same group of people, okay? The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching that the, peop the people and proclaiming the name of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. You can imagine why these people would be upset with this, right? 
let's say uh, you here in the front row, we were them. We were the, the temple guard, and we were the ones who went and arrested Jesus. Yeah, I'm not saying you are the one. I'm just saying just imagine with me. And we were the ones that brought about the whole series of events that led to Jesus' death. And now there's a bunch of other people who are out there saying to other people, he's alive again. Kind of puts us in a bad light, doesn't it? And so they're, they're disturbed by this, and they go to the disciples and they say, it would be great if you would stop talking like that. It would be in your best interest if you stop preaching this whole Jesus alive thing. Because we're the group that's responsible for putting him to death. You know you're putting us in a bad light, right? And so they say to Peter and John, stop talking about this. A few verses further on down in verse 5. The next day the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas. Two names that Luke involves. If you go back to the first book of Luke, Luke is the writer of Acts. You go back to the first book of Luke, and he tells you, Luke tells you why he wrote his gospel. He says, I wrote my gospel because I've heard these stories of Jesus, and so I wanted to investigate it and figure it out. So I went and found out some very specific details. That's why I'm writing this together. It's why he includes details like this. Annas was there, and Caiaphas was there. And he names those two people because those are the same two people that questioned Jesus directly and said, who do you think you are? Listen to the question that they asked the apostles. And they said to them and said, by what power of what name did you do this? I mean, they're asking the apostles the exact same question. Now, if you're Peter, and it's within the last couple of weeks, the last few weeks that you've seen what happened, you saw these, these people arrest Jesus, you saw Annas and Caiaphas question Jesus, and the next time you saw Jesus, he was beaten within an inch of his life and then crucified. And now these same people are standing before you and saying, what do you think you're doing? By whose name are you doing this? You should stop doing this. You should expect, should Peter not just run for his life? It's what we'd expect of Peter, right? The Spirit of God has come on him. And he says this, verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness, sown to a cripple, and asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you and is healed. This is how this is happening. The Jesus that you put to death and you thought was the end of the story is still alive. And it's by that kind of power that we can do the things we do. This is a whole different Peter. This is a Peter who's putting his life on the line, knowing that the people he's talking to have the ability to put him to death if they so desire. But filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, he says this. The priests, surprisingly, decide not to put him to death. They decide to warn them. And so they basically say to them again, they go away and they think about it, and they come back to Peter and John and they say, we're warning you. Now this warning has weight. You know who we are, right? You know what we're capable of, and we're warning you. Stop doing this. And it's the statement that Peter makes next that I want us to take a look at. They warn him that he should not be doing this. And jump down to verse 18. Then they called him in again and commanded them not to speak or teach in all at the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Is it possible that higher criticism might have something to say about the Christian faith? Is it possible that it's just a religious system we put together? It's possible if it's only a religion. It's not possible if it's an event. 
It's not possible if there's people who can say, I was there. I saw it. See, Peter isn't arguing for the basis of a doctrine here. He's not standing up and, and arguing some type of doctrine like we do most times in the church today. You should believe this instead of that. You got this wrong, you have to tweak it and think this way. You're doing this, you should do that. It's none of that. Peter is saying, I'm willing to risk my life on this because of what I saw. I saw it happen. I was here when it all transpired. From the day of the triumphal entry to the beating and the crucifixion. And I'm telling you, I've seen the man now. So you do what you have to do with your religion. You, whatever the temple has to do, I understand you guys got obligations. Do what you got to do. And if it means you got to put an end to me, then do that too. But I'm not going to stop talking about what I actually saw. We're at a disadvantage this morning. Because none of us have seen the risen Christ. But let me ask you this. Is there anybody here this morning who knows that Christ is risen from the dead? But you haven't seen him. You didn't see what Peter saw. We weren't there for it. So how is it that this system of religion has perpetuated so far that we can raise our hands and say, he is risen from the dead, the tomb is empty this morning. And the church said, amen to that. He is risen. You're, you're getting there. I'm, I'm, you're, you're trying. I know you're trying, I can tell. It's what we have seen. We cannot deny what we've seen. It's not a religion. It's not a system. This is based on what we've lived through. We saw him crucified. We saw him raised from the dead. It actually happened. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Jesus said it this way to his disciples before his crucifixion. When he asked them about who he was, and Peter said, it's, it's becoming clear to us, you're the Christ. You are the Redeemer that we've been waiting for. You, you are sent by God to redeem his people. Now, even when Peter said that at the time, he didn't know what was coming. He didn't know how it was going to work out. But he understood that there was something about the person of Jesus, that he was the promised one of God. And Jesus said back to them, on the basis of this faith that you've made, this statement of faith, he says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell itself are not going to be able to do anything about it. Raised from the dead to make his point. Now, flip over to 1 Corinthians, because we'll see what Paul, how Paul phrases this sometime later. This would be years later after the, the gospel of Jesus, the story of Jesus, the story of his resurrection has taken root. Thousands of people, hundreds of people saw him and thousands of people now accept faith in what has happened. That whatever was done to this Jesus person, he actually came back from the dead and it's in him we can put all our hope. Thus is born the church. And so Paul helps to establish churches all over the place at that time. He's writing a letter here to the church in Corinth. And in the church in Corinth, not surprisingly, it's just human rationale. By the way, remember earlier I mentioned dead people don't rise, right? And so that actually started to take root in the church. This is wonderful. We're all excited. This is a good thing. Whoever Jesus was, was really, sounds really exciting. We probably think he was very wise. But by the way, dead people don't rise. And so we will celebrate this thing about Jesus. But the whole resurrection part, maybe that was made up to help energized things. And so Paul addresses the church in 1 Corinthians and he says, look, you're questioning the resurrection, but I need to tell you some things about it. So here's how he says it in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, sorry, yeah, 1 Corinthians 15, start at verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried 
and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared to Peter and to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of them who are still living. So Paul's saying, I understand the resurrection is, uh, is hard to understand. I understand that logic tells us dead people don't rise. I get all that. But you need to know there's more than 500 people who saw Jesus after the crucifixion. And if you have any doubts about it, you can go and ask them. They're still alive. Right? That's what he says. They're still here. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. Jump down to verse 12. But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no no resurrection of the dead? See, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Uh, In some versions, you may find the Bible there, the word foolish. We are fools. And so I'll echo what Paul said this morning. If not for the resurrection of Christ, what in the world are you doing here? Why did you bother getting up and coming this morning? Why would we go through the effort? Why are we likely to come back next Sunday and the Sunday after that? What are we doing? This is not a system. This is not like who, who's going to buy into that? Who's going to invest in that week after week after week your whole life? What, what a bunch of morons. Unless the resurrection is true. If the resurrection is true, then that's worth giving everything to, right? Paul says, feel bad if it was not for that. More than that, verse 15. We are found to be false witnesses about God. For we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he didn't raise him, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still trapped in your sins. He says a little bit later in the same letter, he uses the phrase, which many of us know, death, uh, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now, here's the deal. There's, there's got to be a few of us in this room today that have felt the sting of death. There's got to be a few of us here today who have lost people close to us. You know what it feels like. It's heartbreaking. It's crushing. Right? It is, in fact, our, our worst fear. Lots of things might happen in our lives. Maybe, maybe you lose a job. You, Whatever. List in your head all the all the horrible, terrible things that might happen in your life. And the, the death, either your own or someone you love, it, it ranks right up there, right? It, it's, it's, it's the one. It's that monster that gets in our face and says, whatever you do, whatever you might succeed at, it's going to end anyway, right? You, you're going to lose. Here, here's the harsh reality. You look around the room with the people that you love, maybe someone you're sitting right beside, and someday you lose them. Paul says in this letter to the Corinthians, if our faith is only for this life, then we're lost. If it's only going to serve us for this life, what a bunch of fools we are. But he goes on to say, look, the story of the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ takes away that sting as well. Why? Because it means that our death is not the end. It means that as painful as it is, it means that this massive big fear that we feel we can do nothing about, even when that comes into our circle of experience, Paul says the resurrection tells us that is not an end point. And there's the hope that we have. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means, we actually sang it earlier this morning, right? I believe in the resurrection. I don't know if you noticed it, but it says, I believe in the resurrection that we 
will rise again. Sometimes, <laughs> you ever notice that we sing things and don't even pay attention to what we're singing? I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because what that tells me is we will rise again. I have confidence in that. And so Paul hits that for us. This is what the resurrection means for us. It's not an if thing. Well, if those things are true, then you can build a system. You can build a religion around that. It's not if. It's since. Since the resurrection is true, and there were eyewitnesses to say, I'm willing to risk my life on what I've seen happen here. Since the resurrection is true and Christ has been raised from the dead, that there's no experience, there is no loss, there is no suffering, there is no burden that we cannot live through that we still can't hold on to hope. Now, think about this for a second. Think about the seven-day series of events because you've got your own seven-day circle that you've been through and maybe it's a three-day thing and maybe it's a two-month thing. But listen, the fact that the resurrection promises you that since it is true, you can have hope in every circumstance then whatever the cycle is, is secondary to the truth of the resurrection. That whatever you're anticipating that God's going to do, and maybe he doesn't do, and you feel so collapsed, and the wheels come out from underneath, I don't know how I'm going to recover from this, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, I don't know what the purpose is. We always have the hope of the resurrection. And it can meet us in every circle, it can meet us in every circumstance. It can meet us in every struggle. They went to the tomb, the tomb was empty, and the people said, pastor said, he is risen, and the people said, risen indeed, and there's your hope. And that's why we came to celebrate today, because the hope of Jesus Christ, the truth of his resurrection, gives us purpose in everything we do. If God can meet that, if God can do that, if God can redeem that, if he can bring us back from the dead, then surely there's nothing we can't live through that we say, I can still have hope that God will do something unexpected. Can I have our worship team to come on back up and help to prepare us for this song? I was joking around with Heather this week as we were preparing for the service. Um, and I knew that I was supposed to be on to help with worship team this lead, and she said, well, you're going to sing Your Redeemer Lives. My Redeemer Lives, right? Because you always sing that on every Easter Sunday. I think she may have actually put some money on betting with friends of hers that I was going to do the song. <laughs> yes, we're going to sing My Redeemer Lives, because this morning, unlike any other Sunday, that is the one thing that we celebrate on it is the common thread that ties us all together. Our hope is born on the fact that they went to the tomb, and the tomb was empty because Jesus lives. And because he lives, we have hope and can have hope in everything we do. Amen? I knew you'd be awake by the end of it at some point. Can you stand with us and sing? Let's sing the fact that our Redeemer lives. Sins, I believe. Oh, I believe. 
me hear you. I know he's rescued my soul. His blood is Say what? I can hear these voices. I believe. My shame is taken away. My pain is sealed in his name. I believe. still be here singing my redeemer lives in fact i hope you go away and tomorrow you're still singing in your head my redeemer lives so that when you're pressing through the mundane grind of life and things don't look hopeful it doesn't feel hopeful somebody might look at you and say why are you having any hope at all and you could say simply my redeemer lives and because he lives which he really shouldn't they went to the tomb and it was empty and he was resurrected. I know I have resurrection life and I have hope for tomorrow, whatever that might bring. Something like that. Or you could just say, my Redeemer lives. So one way or another, I hope you find the hope in this week that echoes the fact that your Redeemer lives. Amen. Have a great week.